Thank you, Spencer. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 2 today, and then we're going to jump back to Matthew chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible along with you this morning, you can raise your hand and our Frontlines team will bring one right to you. And if you don't want have one at home and you would like to take this one home for you, or with you, Merry Christmas. It's a gift to you from us. All right, so we're reading from Luke chapter 2, starting at verses 8, and we're going through to verse 21. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a great multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. At the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And we're going to jump back to Matthew chapter 2. Reading verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained them from what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Abby, 
for reading for us. Lots of verses this morning. And as usual, we're going to go through most of them. So I hope you're excited about that. Well, if we don't see you tomorrow night, have a very Merry Christmas. Um, we experienced something somewhat unique and interesting within our church family's Church of the City, and that because um, not all of our church family is younger, but because a, quite a bit of our church family is younger, we don't receive the same sort of expansion that some churches do around the Christmas season, because a lot of those that are younger are going away to their parents' places. Um, for us, so as a result, things change a little bit in the dynamic, but that's why it's also really nice to be able to look out this morning and feel a little bit cozier, feel a little bit tighter in, and to be able to enjoy this morning as we prepare ourselves for Christmas. Um, before we do that, though, uh, as we usually do, let's just take a moment uh, to quiet ourselves, to check in with where we're at this morning. Uh, some of us are maybe feeling the rush, the panic, uh, and hopefully this morning we can check in on that and uh, be able this morning to listen and to uh, invite Jesus to do a work in our hearts and in our lives today. So go ahead and check in how you're feeling and invite Jesus into that place. So Jesus, we do invite you. We thank you that uh, we don't in any way have to doubt the fact that you are with us. The great message and the good news of Christmas is that God is with us. So thank you, Jesus, that you are with us and that we can experience your presence here. And I pray that you would make us aware increasingly of your presence in our lives. May we not doubt the fact that you're with us and may you give us faith to believe that you are here. And so I thank you that you want to do a, a work in our lives and in our hearts today, and you want to reveal to us the motivations by which we go into the season with. So do that, we pray, and help us understand uh, to a greater extent today how great you truly are, and may our response be that of worship. We thank you, God, for all the things that you're doing in our lives. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, October the 3rd, 2014... Uh, Andre and I's lives, uh, forever changed, began to be altered in a completely different way. Now, we knew that this thing was coming, but we didn't exactly know what it would mean. Uh, some of you are like, ooh, what is it? Uh, it's the fact that we had our first child. Uh, we had our first son, Nixon James Naismith. Uh, Nixon, because we like the name James after my grandfather. Naismith, I think that makes sense. So we named him Nixon named James Naismith. And then uh, 19 months later, we had another child, May the 3rd, uh, and we named him Cade Matthew Naismith. Cade, we again like the name Matthew, haha, <laughs> look at me. And then Naismith, again, makes a lot of sense. And so we have these two boys. And what's really interesting when you have children, some of you will experience this, some of you have experienced it, so this will maybe be a point of reminiscing for you. But when you have children, what's really interesting is people's response to you have having the child, right? So usually when people have their first child, you are flooded with visitors. Like we took a picture of everybody that visited us after the firstborn, and then also took pictures of how many people visited us after the second. And you would think Nixon was like something extremely special, and Cade wasn't. But it was just sort of the way that it panned out. Uh, you also realize how different people respond to different things in life. Uh, so one, or specifically children. So one group of people would be like, they were texting us like, oh, like you just had the baby, can we come over? And then they'd text a couple days, can we come over again? 
again. Oh, can we come over again? Then you have the people that like, they don't contact you at all. Um, and then you have the people that actually, when they do come and visit, you have a bunch of different reactions, right? You have the people that are like, oh, give it to me. And, you know, and they immediately like take it from you. You then have the people that are like awkward, like, what is this? Um, and then you have other people that, are, that leave, you know, usually couples are like, well, that was great birth control. You know, and they totally are like, we do not want one of those things. The point being this, how someone responds to a new child says a lot about them. How someone responds to a new child says a lot about them. Uh, and for some people, it says a lot about them that, you know, they're like, they're cuddly and mushy and they, they like, you know, little babies. For other people, it's like, you know, they're fairly stoic. It's like, you know, it's like holding a block, you know. But uh, so different people like respond to babies in different ways. In some ways, because of their own personal experiences, right? Like people who have had children, like I am, I am great now, I think, with little babies. Maybe those who are here who have held your baby before are like, no, he's not. But like, I, 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 maybe I'm not self-aware enough, but I think I'm pretty good with like little children now and babies. Like my brother and my sister-in-law, uh, they just had a new baby in October named Layden, uh, Layden Grace Naismith. We can go into those details at another time, but they had this new baby. And so I'm a, a lot more comfortable, like actually holding little Layden now. Like I got the rock thing going when she's crying. Like, you know, you learn the different sway movements that you got to do with babies. But what it says about me is like, I'm far more comfortable with, with children. And, uh, and so it says a lot about me. Well, we have two visits, and Abby just read for us two visits of two, for two different groups of people to Jesus. Now, uh, we're going to in some ways smash some of our notions of the nativity scene, like the magi were not there, the wise men were not there. And so if you're really holding fast to that, I'd really encourage you to turn your eyes away from that view. Because what you're going to see today is that the visits happen at different times. It's not like this happy group of people all around little baby Jesus at the same time. It happened at different moments. But nonetheless, we have two groups of people, two sets of different types of people that visit Jesus. And so what I want to do today is look at these two visits. Maybe you've forgotten that this is how it worked, right? The two outside visitors, guests coming to visit Jesus. Uh, but that's what happened. And so we have two visits. And so what I want to do today is actually look at the fact of what is, what is the response of each of these groups to Jesus tell us about those people. But maybe, in fact, they'll actually tell us a lot more about Jesus himself than about the people themselves. So we'll do that exploration together. So if you have your Bibles, Luke 2... We'll start there because if we go chronologically, the shepherds were at this place. The wise men, as we shall see, were not in the typical nativity scene. So verse 8 of Luke 2, as Abby read for us, we'll read it again. And in the same region. Now what are we talking about? What region? Well, as James taught last week, the first seven verses of chapter 2 of Luke's gospel is the telling of Jesus' birth. And we read that that happened in the region of Bethlehem. And so what's going on here is that in the same region of Bethlehem, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, if we're to just stop there, okay, so we're, you know, we got shepherds in Bethlehem. Well, what do we know as we study history about shepherds? Well, some of us, I think, like to think of shepherds as like, oh, the way to like a lovely job or what a respectable group of people. Culturally speaking, shepherds were considered unreliable. And one of the reasons that we know that they were considered unreliable is because shepherds weren't actually allowed to be witnesses in court. You know, if, if people were calling witnesses to stand for them in court, they were actually not allowed because they were considered unreliable. You can't trust what a shepherd is going to say. Uh, secondly, shepherds were considered unclean or dirty. As we read here, that they're keeping watch over their flocks at night. And what that means is that they were not able to participate in the traditional Jewish ceremonial cleansing uh, rituals. 
And so these are people that are, they're not reliable. They're considered unclean and dirty. They're people that by and large are residing outside of the city. So there are people removed from the main culture, which as you've probably heard over the last couple of weeks is a common pattern and theme, right? We would assume that, well, Jesus is going to come to the people that mean something. Here, Jesus comes and these are the people who are going to visit Jesus to a group of people that, by and large, do not mean anything. They care of sheep. Take care of sheep for their lives. They don't matter. Yet here we're going to see the tables completely turned on who Jesus says matters and who matters less. So here they are, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Once again, we're told the angel of the Lord. This is now the third angel appearance in Luke's gospel. And notice again, it's not an angel of Hercules. It's an angel of the Lord. An angel of the Lord. Also, it's not some random angel. It's an angel of the Lord. It's God's sent angel. Appears to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. What that simply means is that they're in the darkness of the night. There's no darkness anymore. Light has appeared to them. The darkness of the night has gone away. And they were filled with great fear. No kidding. You know, imagine you're just minding your business outside of the city, taking care of sheep. Uh, some of us maybe get that, you know, that understand a little bit more than others if you're aware of sheep and all those sorts of things. Others are like, I don't know what anything that would be like. But just imagine, you know, like an angel of the Lord appears to you. You know, you're in the midst of just doing your, your everyday business. They're filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all the people. Now immediately, a couple messages already brought by the angel. One, fear not. So again, the angel is tapping into how they're feeling in that moment. Fear not. Well, why don't we need to fear? I mean, you're an angel. We're shepherds. What does the angel say? I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. You notice what the angel has just done there? He's broadened the category of what they're about to hear. I just don't have great news for you, shepherds. I've got great news for all people, and I'm bringing it to you, shepherds, first. What I'm about to say to you is not just for you, it's for all people. And in this moment, I'm prioritizing you as receivers of this news. But what I'm about to tell you isn't just for you. It's for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Okay, so once again, we've, we've talked about, you know, when people announce babies... They do it in some unique ways over Facebook. No one that I've yet witnessed has done it in the way of an angel showing up. But here is an angel telling shepherds about a good news that will be for all people, not just for you. And here's the news. There's a Savior born to you. In the city of David, the king from all those years ago, the royal line of David. He's born to you this day in the city of David. And who is he? He's Christ the Lord. This is the Messiah. He's not just any baby. The shepherds are actually some of the first ones to hear the gospel for the very first time. 
the news that is going to change the whole world, the news that is going to be for all people, that a Savior has come, who's Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So you want to know, shepherds, what we say is true? Go and find this baby, and here are going to be the circumstances around his birth. And you'll know that what we're telling you is true. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. I mean, the scene is just unbelievable, right? Their plans for the night have just dramatically changed. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Like, think about, again about who these shepherds are. The Lord may know this thing to us, shepherds, unreliable, unclean, us. Let's go see if what this angel has said is in fact true. Let's go look for the sign. And notice what they do. They went with haste. It means they went quickly. They're not like, oh, you know, I'll wait for Fred. You know, he's sort of in the back. You know, he's sort of taking his time. They're sauntering along here. No, they went quickly. This is a big deal. This is big news. Good news of great joy for all people. They went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. This is the confirmation of the sign that the angel had given. Here is Mary and Joseph, the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. Well, what's the saying that had been made known to them? It's the very good news of what the angel told them. They say to everyone, you guys are not going to believe it. But this baby, the angel just told us that this baby is good news for all people, all people, friends. And this baby is the Savior. This baby's Christ. Well, what's the response? And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Wondered. Hmm. You know, they're wondering, one, these guys are unreliable. But two... Weird news. But notice Mary's response. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Why is she pondering? Why is she taking the the witness of these shepherds? Well, if you go back into our last chapter, she knows that what the shepherds are telling her is the fact, the truth. This is Christ the Lord. This is the Savior of all people. This is the Son of David. You're right. Wow, isn't this amazing? They know it. The shepherds know it. She's like, wow, God revealed himself to me now. To shepherds too? Wow. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told to them. So notice the pattern of these new disciples. Really, they teach, they treasure, they tell. And they praise God, and they worship God. That's the proper response, as it would see from witnessing, from experiencing Christ, from witnessing and experiencing the good news of Jesus, is to teach, treasure, and tell. It's the same response for those of us who are followers of Jesus when we come to know him, is we, we now go and we teach people, we treasure the good news of Christ in our hearts, and then we, we tell. We can't stop talking about Jesus. We want to worship God because of what he's done. I mean, that's why we keep coming back together every Sunday if you're a follower of Jesus. 
Right? We keep coming back to remember, to worship, to thank God, to be thankful for those of us that are here today and you're not a follower of Jesus. This may be the first time you're being taught about Jesus. Our prayer is that the Holy Spirit, in combination with you hearing, would now you would treasure the good news of Jesus and that then you would now want to go tell other people once you've understood and treasured the good news of Christ. It's the way it goes. Teach, treasure, and tell. And they're worshiping Jesus. So what does this tell us about the shepherds? Well, it tells us actually, as we see here, very little about the shepherds and actually more about Jesus because of their response to him. Like, when I leave visiting new babies, you know, you also have the people that are like, oh my goodness, he looks so much like you. And you're like, come on. He's like a little mushy potato at this point. Like, you can't really tell who he's actually or she's going to look like. You know? But it's sort of like, oh, that was nice. Or, you know, you leave and you're commenting to the person with you. Oh, isn't that nice? Yeah. Oh my goodness, am I glad I don't have a newborn right now. Right? Like, you're focusing on you. Notice these shepherds' response. It wasn't on them. It was who they just witnessed and experienced. And as a result, we glorify and praise God. It tells us much about Jesus, less about the shepherds. So let's go back to Matthew 2. What could be some of the commonalities or the similarities between these two guests, these two visitors to Jesus? Matthew 2, about the wise men, other visitors, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, okay, so once again, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, okay, so what most people believe is that the, the wise men or the magi, as we'll find out here in a second, that they would have visited Jesus prior to him being two years old because of the timeline of when Herod uh, demands the execution of children under the age of two. So he's under two, but he's no longer a newborn. Okay? Understand that. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, again, an introduction is being given there. We'll find out more about him. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So wise men, who are these people? Well, uh, they more best would go by magi. They are astrologers. They're students of the stars. What you understand about them is in complete contrast to the shepherds who are unreliable. These are wise people. They're eminent. They're prominent. They're well-respected in their society. They're not unreliable. They're not ceremonially unclean in their society. They are prominent. They are eminent. They are respected. They are experts in their field. And here they come to Jerusalem because they, as we'll see, they saw a star. And they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Notice the identity marker that they are recognizing about Jesus. Where is he that has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Once again, as experts of the stars, they're taking notice of unique and different stars. And so here is a star. Uh, what many people understand and believe as we look at the scriptures is that the fact that a star has risen is actually a fulfillment of a prophecy back in Numbers connected to per a person by the name of Balaam. Can everyone say Balaam? And in Balaam, uh, in Numbers 24 verse 16... He said this is a prophecy over Israel, although most people understand it was a prophecy about the coming Messiah. He says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. 
A lot of details now that we don't have the time to go into, but the key to note is that this risen star, and so these wise men, these eminent, these prominent individuals, experts in their field, come to Jerusalem looking for the king of the Jews. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now in 40 AD, Historically speaking, Herod was, by Rome, pronounced the ruler of Judea, and so he was actually given the title King of the Jews. So, you're King of the Jews, you hear a group of people, prominent people from the east, coming to your town looking for the King of the Jews, but guess what? They're not looking for you. Hmm. We read that he's troubled. You go to the Greek, he's terrified. He's terrified. There's another king of the Jews. I am the king of the Jews. What we understand about King Herod as we look at history is is Herod, if, if he felt in any way like someone was coming for his job, he would have them killed. He had wives and I believe children at the time killed out of fear of them potentially trying to overthrow him. That's the kind of individual we're dealing with here. It's not some like nice king that sits on a throne, not very involved. He's power-hungry, and he's willing to do whatever it will take to protect both his identity and his throne. He was troubled. We read all Jerusalem with him was troubled as well. There's another king of the Jews. Who could this be? And assembling all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now notice he assembles the chief priests. The chief priests at the time, they were the ones that represented uh, the Jewish worship, or they were the ones that were generally motivated. They were the religiously motivated politicians. Then there's the scribes. They were the ones who represent Jewish law. Lawyers who knew and taught the Jewish scriptures. So he goes to those who are experts in Judaism, and he says, okay, tell me, what this is that these wise men, these magi, speak of. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now this is them quoting Micah, 5 verse 2. Once again, another fulfillment of a prophecy that was spoken about before. But notice this, okay? And this came as I was doing some research on this. If these are experts in both Jewish law and Jewish worship, and they know about this prophecy, and they potentially have heard that Jesus has been born, why are they not at the scene? Why are they not looking out in Bethlehem for this Jesus? Which tells us something about religious people. Religious people can know a lot, but not actually know Jesus. Right? They're the experts. Here we have prominent men from the East, likely polytheists, coming to look for the Savior. Where are the religious, stuck-up folks? In Jerusalem, not looking for Jesus. We've got prominence and power in our own society of Judaism. Why would we look for this Savior? Yet they're the experts. May that be a warning to those of us 
who believe we know a lot about Jesus but may not actually know Jesus. You need Jesus. You need to cherish Jesus. You need to be searching for Jesus. So what happens? Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, secretly, and ascertained from them what might, what, at what time the star had appeared. He's trying to put maybe some details together as far as, okay, so where is this king of the Jews? How old might he be? And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Liar! Right? I mean, you just read that in the text. Like, you're pretending to be kind. But you have the worst motivations here, buddy. You don't want to worship him. If he's king of the Jews, you want him dead. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. You know, as the pillar of cloud that led the Israelites... In the day, in the pillar of fire by night, here is God again directing and leading things in our lives, in this situation, to lead them directly to where the child is. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. You know, they've, they've found what they were coming to seek out, Right? You like, you like when that happens, right? When you find something that you were diligently trying to search for, whether it be your keys or your phone or any of these things. I mean, it's a big deal. <laughs> you found it. But here, look who they've found. They found the king of the Jews, and we know that by how they respond. They see the child with Mary, his mother, once again, potentially around a year old, maybe a little bit more. Notice what they do. This is their response. They fall down and worshiped him. Prominent men from the East, experts in their field, are falling down before a toddler, worshiping him. Like, just think about that's weird to do. Unless who they are bowing and worshiping is, in fact, who all the prophecies have said he is, unless he is in fact the Christ. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now again, these are prominent people from the East, and they're giving gifts. What that means is you only give someone a gift in this culture as them if you believe that who you're giving the gifts to is superior to yourself. So not only are they falling down and worshiping him because they believe he is, in fact, who many have said he is, but they now also understand that he is therefore superior to us. And so they give him gifts, and they're lavish gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. A lot of people have speculated the details of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold potentially connected to royalty. Frankincense, very human thing to give somebody at the time. Myrrh has been connected to both birth and perfume used at death, which some have used to, to again, point at the fact Jesus, when he was on the cross, when he hung there, was offered wine and myrrh. So some have said he is this substance both at his, you know, the front part of his human life and both the tail end of his human life. Yet what we're to understand about these gifts primarily 
is that they're lavish gifts. You know, they're not socks. <laughs> like these are costly gifts that they're giving to someone they see as their superior and with whom they are worshiping. That's what we're to understand here. Verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. As we'll see next, there's then another warning that will come. But yet here we have, in summary, these two drastically different groups of people making a visit. I should also note that there were probably about 30 wise men or magi. Okay, not just three. Everyone's like, oh, there's three. Why? Because there's three gifts. Come on now. Probably like three people traveling like that from the east. Potentially a caravan of about 30 people. Right? It's a big deal. What do we make of this? Well, as I said earlier, the big idea being how someone responds to a new child says a lot about them. Yet as we see in this story, there is a near identical response of the shepherds and the wise men to Jesus' birth, which tells us more about Jesus than it does about the visitors themselves. Because regardless of their background, they respond in a near identical way. Why? Because no matter the background nor the story, there is unified response to Jesus because of who he is and what he has come to do. There's the identical and unified response, no matter the background, no matter the story, because of who this child is, who Jesus is, and then what Jesus has come to do. Well, who is Jesus? Well, he's the Christ, the Messiah. He's God with us. He's not some tiny little baby. Well, he's physically a baby. This is God. And so they respond in that way. This is the promised one. This is God with us. And what has this Jesus, this Christ, come to do? He's come because of good news for all people. He's going to save people from their sins. All people. This is a good news baby. The greatest news baby. And so they bow and they worship and both groups praise God. They make much of God rather than looking at themselves because of who they've witnessed and experienced. No matter the background nor the story, there's unified response to Jesus because of who he is and what he's come to do. Now, we could easily just stop there and continue to revel in this, right? But I think what we need to ask ourselves is the question of how do you respond to Jesus? How do you respond to Jesus? And as we're in this season of Christmas, how are you responding to Jesus? Has the miracle of who Jesus is and what he has come to do truly touched your mind in this season? Have you truly stopped to reflect on, okay, you know, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, every year, right? It's like, okay, Christmas, you know, okay, we're going to get our presents, going to do the thing. Oh, it's Christmas morning, okay, and then Christmas afternoon, okay. Do we truly stop to worship? Can we worship fully in this season? Now, if you're like me, you're maybe feeling it like the conviction of the Holy Spirit right now. You're like, wow, like I have not stopped to think about Jesus. I've been so busy thinking about other things. I have not stopped to think about Jesus. Maybe you're like me that like after Christmas morning, I've had a lot of Christmas afternoons that I'm sitting there and, you know, boxing in going, well, that was it? We did all that for that? Is that what all this is about? If you're like me, you grow apathetic. Came across an article this week titled The Dark Side of Christmas, How Demons Spend the Holidays 
by a guy by the name of Greg Morse. And in this article, he writes in the form of, like C.S. Lewis does in the screw tape letters, which some of you will be aware of, which is one demon writing to another demon about how to uh, woo people away from, from Jesus, titles Jesus in the screw tape letters as the enemy. And in the same way, this author by the name of Greg Morse focuses on three things um, in this article that he believes demons spend their time doing over the holidays. And I want to list them to us because I think for me at least, they contribute to the apathy that I'm experiencing. And the first thing he says that demons do at Christmas is that they remove Christ from Christmas. He says, in other words, do everything you can to keep the focus off of Christ and in cultural Christmas celebration and habit. He writes this, The pine trees and presents, mistletoes and twinkling lights, Santa and snowmen, sugar cookies and family cheer, these are Christmas. We've hidden the child beneath many straws of hay. Their merriments are inns without spare rooms. These shepherds stay in their fields. Wonderfully have they become magi who swap their gifts with one another, never noticing the bright star that leads to Bethlehem. Behold, Christmas delightfully abridged, we spell it Xmas. Now, this isn't just about like, oh, look at that sign. They short-formed it. Look at your life. Is Christ a part of your Christmas celebration? Is Christ a part of your Advent season? Or is he buried? That our lives as followers of Jesus, of those who are to worship the great king, looks identical to those that are around us in our culture. Remove Christ from Christmas. John Piper, in an article this week, now I know this is going to push some buttons as it relates to Santa, he writes this, I regard the effort of Christian parents to lay the Santa Claus story over the Jesus story as a failure to be thrilled with the greatest story in the world and a failure of imagination for how to speak about the real story and show the real story in a way that helps children share in our amazement. Now I'm not telling you like, okay, you know, you've got a two-year-old, go tell him, you know, right after we're done here today, Santa's, you know, I'm not going to say it here in case there is anyone. Parents should probably be the ones to share that news. But, If in any way that story has taken to be the primary story of your household, got some work to do. Because Jesus is to be the greatest story. Secondly, what does the demon want to do at this time of year? Gift wrap Jesus. This is done by making Jesus weak, small, and innocent and never allowing him to grow up. We remove completely what we read about him through the rest of the scriptures. Take Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4, for example. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Who is this Jesus? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is Jesus, friends. But we like to gift wrap him. Poor, weak, little baby Jesus. And thirdly, we, the, the temptation of the demons is to make everything merry. Believe culture's vision of Christmas, the merriness, the presence, the false hopes and joys. This is what he writes in the article. Make everything merry. 
Focusing the humans on their feelings is a sure way to steal that news of great joy from your subject. Sentimentalism, nephew, sentimentalism. The mushier their foundation for gaiety, the better. We offer only temporary reprieves. After presents lie unwrapped, living rooms empty, goodwill fades, and work resumes, we can leave them more miserable on December 26 than they've been all year. Now, as I pick it up, I've 100% fallen susceptible to these tactics. In parts this year, in parts past years. The reality is, is that we're left empty because we've missed Christ by placing our hope in someone or in something else. In someone or in something else. It's not Jesus. It's someone or something else. But the reality is, I take hope in this reality is that this is not the way that it has to be. Well, why? Romans 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus knew about our apathy. Jesus knows about your apathy. He knows about your feelings in this time of year. He knows about it. He knew about it. And he chose to die anyways. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8 verses 1 to 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit, of, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What in the world is Paul saying? Christ has done everything required to earn the favor of God for you. And so even as you sit, and maybe you're feeling like, oh, what have I done to my Christmas season this year? I've done the same thing over and over again. It's like, come to Jesus again. Be reminded of what he's done for you. He saw this in you. Yet he chose to still come for you, to show you love, because he loves you. God loves you so incredibly much that he sent his only son for you, so that you might have life. We need to be reminded of who Jesus is, what he's come to do. But then we also need the Holy Spirit to impress these realities and truths upon our heart. The Holy Spirit impresses upon our hearts the good news of Jesus Christ bringing us to life through repentance and faith, which empowers us to worship, surrender, and be filled with wonder and joy. 
The great good news of this is that you don't have to do it alone. Like maybe some of you are like, I've got to muster up this like excitement about Jesus right now. Lean into the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit impress upon your heart the great good news of the gospel and respond from what the Spirit is doing in and through you. Scott Sauls, in his new book that's coming out soon, wrote this. We must be acted upon from the outside to become a renewed people with an irresistible faith. We must be acted upon from the outside to become a renewed people with an irresistible faith. God's breathed out word will have no impact upon us until God breathes life into us. Just as a rocket cannot launch or a car cannot travel without an igniting force to fire up its engine, so a Christian cannot be transformed by the Bible without the prerequisite new birth through the Holy Spirit. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Friends, through the Spirit, we too can be like the shepherds and wise men who worship, surrendered, submitted, and were left with wonder and with joy. You can't muster that up on your own. I invite our band to come up. want to encourage you, we're going to be going into these next couple of days. For some of us, we're, we're, we're already feeling anxious and overwhelmed by it. For some of us, family, extended family, it's just not fun. It doesn't feel healthy. It's not life-giving. May we be reminded that Jesus has given us life and that the Spirit brings us to life. The same Spirit who rose Jesus from the dead, is alive in those who have committed their lives to Jesus Christ. And friends, I know that many people say this at Christmas time, but I hope it comes with a fresh reality through the Spirit in your life today that Jesus truly is the greatest gift. That there will be nothing that you will unwrap over the next few days that can bring you the satisfaction and joy that Jesus brings. So don't put your hope and trust in those things to give you what they can't give you. May your hope, faith, trust come from Jesus. And as the Spirit presses that upon your hearts, may we truly be like the shepherds and wise men who exceedingly rejoiced in the great good news for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Spirit, I thank you for what you've been doing in my life this week. Thank you for revealing to me the areas, the places where I'm putting my trust. I pray, Jesus, today that you would come alive and come real to me yet again. I thank you that you allow that opportunity of second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, hundredth chances to be reminded yet again of your goodness. I thank you that my salvation is not dependent upon what I have done for myself, but upon what you have done for me. I cannot impress you with my good work because you know all of my bad works. So I thank you that we are saved because of Jesus. And I pray that Jesus 
in his fullness would come alive today for each and every single one of us and that we would go into this week and the continuing reality of this season that we would not be as unhappy on December 26th as maybe some of us are feeling today but that you would do something unique in each of us right now. I pray that if there's anyone in this room today that does not know you as Savior and as King, that they, like the shepherds and the wise men who responded in worship to understanding who you are, would also worship you, Jesus. We thank you for the great good news of the gospel, that you came to live the life that we could not live, died the death that we should have died, and came back to life, giving us newness and true resurrection, that we do not fear death, but that we have the promise of eternal life. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.